How you guys doing? That's good. It's good. You guys enjoying your summer so far? Like three of you. Mumble, mumble. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, you got a few weeks left. You should enjoy your summer. It's nice and warm out. Although it's, it's uh, smoky out there. Who's barbecuing? Yeah, I smell it. I smell it. I think it's a forest fire. Don't, I'm not sure. Anyhow. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Williams. And uh, like Amber said, we... Uh, My wife Amber and I are the lead pastors here, and we're so glad that you're here this morning. We're glad to be back from vacation. Uh, I also want to say to those who are watching online, uh, we're so glad that you're watching online, and we'd love to meet you in person, and we look forward to seeing you here in the coming future. So we are in the middle of a sermon series called Jesus is Greater Than. Jesus is Greater Than. How many of you guys have been enjoying the series so far? You guys have been enjoying the series? Yeah? That's good. All right. I'm glad. I'm glad. So we're going through the book of Hebrews. This is something that's a little bit different than our normal pattern, right? Because normally we kind of find a topic or, or a very short series that, that we change about every month. But we thought, you know, for the whole summer, we're going to go through the book of Hebrews one chapter at a time. One, one chapter at a time. So this morning, I'm going to talk about change. Do you like change? No, I see some heads shaking yes and some, and some very audible no's. Some people are very against, against change. I find it to be funny that some people love change and some people absolutely appall change. In fact, what I find is that people like the idea of change in the sense that like, hey, somebody should do something about this problem that's over here. Like globally, there should be some change that happens. But personally, I don't want to actually be the one to change. That tends to be the, the tension that I see all the time. And uh, do you find it exciting or, or do you find it difficult? You know, getting married is a fun change, isn't it? It's a really fun change, especially in the beginning when you first get married. Everything's so fun and exciting and new. And, and, then, and then you learn little changes that have to be made, such as do the forks go, like do the knives go blades down or do they go blades up? Right? Like, who's a blades down person in, in here? Yeah, see, who's a blades, who's a blades, yeah, who's a blades up? Sorry, I did the hands wrong. Yes, yeah, so you see, it's already 50-50 in here. But then when you get married, you have to figure out somebody's got to change. Because you can't have it half one and half the other because the OCD side of one of you is going to freak out and you just can't handle that kind of change. And so you want the other person to change, don't you? I mean, obviously the toilet paper rolls under. We all know that. And so if you're an what? If you're an overroller, you need to change right now, right now. <laughs> Changes in life can be kind of fun. They can be kind of scary. They can be difficult. They can be happy. You know, having a kid is exciting too, isn't it? When you're going to have your first baby, everything's exciting and, and, and you're both sleeping through the night, no problem. And you're dreaming about what it's going to be like. And, and then you pick out colors to paint the nursery and, and you go to the registry thing and you scan everything in the store because you think you need everything. And then, and then the reality of the day comes when you have the baby and you're like, holy cow, this is a lot of work. I missed the, you know, I, I, it's, it's two on one though, right? Like, like at least you guys can tag team out. Somebody can get some sleep. Somebody can be awake with the baby. But then baby number two comes along. That's a whole nother change. You wouldn't think so. But baby number two is different because now you've got baby number one on a sleep schedule that you are all as a family now adhering to that sleep schedule of baby number one. And baby number two comes along and ruins the whole thing. It ruins it all. And who's going to change? I guess, you know what? Baby number two has to change. So you get two kids going. Things are great. You've got a mom and a dad, and you've got a couple kids, and you're, and you're working at it together. Maybe you got the thing going. And then baby number three comes along. And again, it changes everything. Your car has to change. Your table set, the four-top table that you had in your kitchenette no longer works for your family. So now you're changing your furniture, you're changing your vehicles, and that your house might need to change, or, or you have to change who sleeps in which rooms. Or, or The whole game changes when you add that third kid, and every time you add something, everything around it tends to change, doesn't it? If you're moving or if you're moving from one house to the next house, and, and we, we moved about a new house a few years ago, and, and that was a whole nother experience in change. In fact, I accidentally drove to my old house on my way home from work because, does anybody here get on autopilot when you're driving around town? 
I'm constantly on autopilot. In fact, Amber is my very handy, kind, sweet GPS. You go, honey, you just missed your turn, you know? And, uh, and so all the time I get on autopilot. I went autopilot home to my old house multiple times when I first moved because I forgot. I didn't forget where I lived. I just autopiloted back there. I don't know what it was about that. In fact, the autopilot thing's kind of scary, isn't it? You ever driven to a place and you pull into your driveway and you're like, I literally do not remember the actual drive, but somehow I'm here and I'm safe. Yeah, okay, some of you guys have, whew, it's scary, right? Yeah, so the autopilot, you get moving and changing careers can be scary or can be exciting, depending on what you're doing. You know, change is one of those things that, that in fact, even in the scientific community, there are laws regarding around change. So Isaac Newton said this, everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. If, if we allow ourselves, we can become very comfortable where we're at until forces come along and compel us to move out of that state. Most of the time in our lives, those forces come along in the, in the form of frustration or, or maybe even unhappiness of where you're at. Have you ever noticed that the motivation that gets you from point A to point B, it's a little bit different from time to time. Sometimes you get excited about the future that it could be, and that force is drawing you to where you want to go. Sometimes you're in the place where you are, and, and the, the, the frustration and the, the lack of contentment of where you are forces you out of that place, and, and you still have to go to a new place. Change is kind of a funny thing. In fact, there's been some research done on change. Different people adapt to change in different ways. So, have you ever seen those guys that line up in front of the uh, Apple store when the new iPhone is being released, and they line up and they camp out with like tents and they live out there, or or maybe the new Xbox or the PlayStation or, or whatever the new technology piece is is being released on a, on a certain day? You see the diehards out there in camping tents overnight, sleeping in front of the store to be the first one with their hand on it. They call those the early adapters. The early adapters. In fact, they say that only 2.6% of our population is an early adapter population. I personally don't want to be an early adapter, although I find myself wanting to, but, I, but then I have to resist because I understand that the early adapter has to deal with all the technology bugs. And so I want to, I control the urge and I want to resist to early adapt because I, I don't want to buy it and then have it be frustrating. I, I want to wait for other people to experience the mistakes. And, and that second group is called the early adopters. And that's actually 13.5% of our population is an early adopter. They won't wait in line, but they will be one of the first to get the thing or, or to take the change or embrace the change. Then come the big chunks, the slow majority followed by the reluctant majority. The slow majority is 34%. 34, and the reluctant majority is also 34% of the population. See, the slow, the slow majority... Is, is kind of a, a herd following. They'll go along with where culture is leading. They'll go along with where the changes are heading. They're not going to be aggressively pushing for it, but they're not resistant against it. They just kind of go with the flow. If they roll out a new software at your office, they just kind of go with the flow. If you are a slow, uh, a reluctant majority, once the new software rolls out in your office and most of the people are already doing it, you're the guy that's like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. But then the last category happens, and that's the antagonistic. That is the 16%. Those are the people that will quit their job over the software that's running on the machine because they will not adapt to what has to happen. If you have a flip phone, you may be in that category. No pointing of fingers, but it's possible. You may be in the reluctant majority, but you may be in the antagonistic. I will never change. This phone worked all these years. In fact, the phones have changed. Remember those old like Nokia phones? You would drop it and break the floor. You know what I mean? And now you drop this thing and, 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 and it, it breaks the whole thing. The whole device is now broken. And, and of course, you have to like finance the devices now on your calling plan because they're so expensive. It's crazy. Listen, this, this whole idea of change is important. In fact, in the Bible, we're going to look at this idea of change and how Jesus brought in a change. He brought in a new way of doing things. 
He brought in a new change and a new way of doing things. And, and there were those who were early adopters and those that were slow adopters. And there were those who were antagonistic and were absolutely against everything that Jesus brought. And this is really important. You see, I don't want us to be antagonistic, slow adopting to the ways that Jesus teaches. I want us to be people who can latch on to what the Word of God teaches us and to be able to run with it. Sometimes the change that comes in our life is because we get frustrated and get forced out of that place. But see, my hope for you is that you would be and I would be people who see the opportunities of what Jesus does for us. And we take the steps necessary, not out of being forced out of our old way, but out of pursuing the new way that God has for us. I think being people who are pursuers of God, people who are chasing God's and God and the promises of God, I want us to be those kinds of people. You see, people grew up in this day and age where, where Jesus came onto earth. People grew up around a certain way of worship. They grew up around a certain way of doing things. They had a temple. They had to bring a sacrifice. They had to, they had to, uh, to bring it down to the altar. And there was like this holy of holies and only the priest could do it. And in fact, the priest was the person who was running the church. And then what, what happened is people will have sinned. They will have made a mistake. They will have fallen short. And guess what? You and I, we're, we're all sinners. We've all made mistakes. We've all fallen short. None of us are perfect. And so as we, people have made mistakes, they had to come to the priest. And the priest would then be an intermediary person between them and God to help present their sacrifice in order to be to God. Now, back then, the sacrifice was a blood sacrifice. And I know it sounds really gruesome in our culture. Culture, but but you'd bring your favorite animal, your cat, whatever, and and your sheep, your goat, and and uh, you'd bring like a, what they call a spotless lamb, maybe, or like your your top shelf animal that you might have. In my case, it's Coco. I have a Siamese cat, beautiful animal. He'd be a perfect sacrifice for my family. So you bring the, and then I have one last cat, which is a win for everybody as well. So you're know, just saying, cats. But they'd bring this animal and they'd be sacrificed it, and that would be the atonement for their sins between their mistakes. And so that the God who demands a just and pure life, he would say, okay, now you have the atonement that bridges the gap between where you are and, and where you need to be. See, atonement is this word where if you have two guys in a, have you ever been out in a, with your friends and somebody gets in a fight with another person? First off, if, if you, this is a regular occurrence from you, you need new friends but you've seen it maybe in the movies or you heard a story about your other friends who also go out and get in fights at the bar or something. So the, the fight that's happening and two people are angry with each other and the person that steps in the middle of them says, all right, boys, step it down. Step. That's the person stepping in the middle, bringing temporary relief and atonement for the disagreement that's there. So, so when people would bring a sacrifice, it was an atonement. It was a temporary relief, a separation between the wrath of God and the impurities and the sin of, of mankind and sin. And there was just this pattern they had to go through on a regular basis. And Jesus, he came and he prepared a new and a better way for man to relate to God. That is the miracle of who Jesus is. That is the miracle right there. And so Jesus prepared a new and better way to the Father. And so here we go. We're going to go into Hebrews chapter 8. We are in week number 8. So we are in chapter 8, one chapter a week. And in the series of Jesus is greater than. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus is greater than the old way. He is greater than the old way. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 is going to come up on the screen. We're going to read through a few verses. And I'll stop and talk and we'll kind of go through this together. So in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 it says this. Now the the point in which and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for the priest to also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you have made everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Okay. We are about halfway through the book of Hebrews, and the writer is pausing right here, and he's saying, listen, I've been talking for seven chapters about this, and so I want to do just a little bit. Let's pause here and make sure that we are all on the same page. We've been covering this whole idea all the way through for the past 
few weeks. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus isn't the shadow of what is to come. He is what we have been waiting for. You see, for hundreds or for thousands of years, people have been prophesying and talking about the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. And Jesus is not a new prophet that's coming to predict a different Messiah. He is the Messiah. So he's not the shadow. He's not the foretelling. He is the one that is, they've been talking about in the Bible for all of this time. So Hebrews is about Jesus being greater. He is Christ's supremacy to all things. Okay, verse number six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old than, than the old as a covenant he meditates is better, since mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant has been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, so there is a covenant, a promise that, that between God and his people. He makes multiple covenant promises all the way through the Old Testament. There, there's a handful of them that, that he's made. And so they're saying here, it, because the relationship still isn't right between man and God, Jesus is coming. See, if, if the old covenant was working, then there would be no need for Jesus. But because it was not working, Jesus had to come to make a better way. So verse 8. And this is where they're actually quoting from the Old Testament. Verse 8, it says this, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So in the Old Testament, prophesying about the coming of Jesus, this is what they're saying, that they will establish a new covenant in the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern from them, declares the Lord. Okay, there are different covenants in the Old Testament. Now, I don't have an hour to go through every single covenant, but let's just run a quick brief one. There's a covenant with Adam. There's a covenant with Noah. And with Noah, there's the flooding of the earth and the rainbow and the promise from God that I'm not going to do this again. There, there, was a, there was a covenant with Abraham, a promise with Abraham about how his descendants, and, and then the promise with Moses, and it's specifically referencing the covenant with Moses in here. I freed you from Egypt. This is talking about Moses' covenant. And, and then there's a covenant with David. And, and So sometimes what will happen in Christian circles, if you're a believer with us today, you, you may have heard this, is that, is that they will say, well, there's an old covenant and then there's a new covenant, and the new covenant of Jesus erases and get, deletes and just throws everything in the old covenant in the trash. But that's actually not the case. This, they use this passage to say that, but that's not what this passage is actually saying. It's saying that there is a better way from the covenant of Moses from this pattern. It is not like all the old covenants are all one old covenant and the old is gone and, and now we have the new one. It, it's specifically referencing to one and it's saying it's actually getting an upgrade is what is it's, it's happening here. So God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and under the leadership of Moses. And so through Moses, God laid out expectations for how to live. There was the Ten Commandments. You guys remember that, right? Pieces of rock, Jesus writes things, Ten Commandments, do this, don't do that. That was part of it. Somehow they turned that into 613 rules, about half of which are do's and half of which are don'ts. And so there was a whole long list of do's and don'ts and rules all tied in with the way that the religious system was operating. So there's a couple things going on. That was one number. Number two is this, is how do you respond when sin and, with sin and rebellion for sin? Atonement, right? So atonement made right with God was a blood sacrifice. So the head of house brought an animal to the priest and it was sacrificed to keep his family in right standing with God. Atonement is that temporary covering. So everything in the old covenant was accomplished by doing something on the outside, hoping that it would work its way in to the inside. This is important to understand. The old covenant was this. We're working from the outside, trying to work its way inside so that we might have a right relationship with God. And it wasn't working because everybody was so obsessed with the checking off of the boxes and following the letter of the law, they lost the spirit of the law in the midst of it. The spirit of the law was not about do this and don't do that. The spirit of the law was this, is that God was desperately pursuing a relationship with you 
and in order for you to be in relationship with him, there's some things that had to be in place. And so they missed it. They missed the spirit of it all. You see, the new covenant is this. When Jesus came, he said, listen, forget about that. I want to start on this. I want to put my spirit inside of you, and I want to work from your inside on the way out. And so he flipped the tables around. The motivation is the same. The end result is hopefully the same. But the difference between the old way and the new way is this. is old way was outside in and the new way is inside out. And it's really important that we understand this. So Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not... They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the new covenant, the word and will of God, will no longer be written on stone tablets or even electronic tablets, I guess, or white pages. The rules and the law of God will be written on their hearts. Something on the inside that he's putting inside of you. There's a new system of ownership. There's, we have a relationship with God that starts not because of anything that we did, because of everything that he did. You see, the old way was us doing things to be in right relationship with God. And the new covenant is Jesus came to earth and did that thing so that we no longer have to try to check off those boxes so that we can now stand in right relationship with God now, just accepting and believing what Jesus did for us. So the old way was us trying to do it all and try to get to the right place. And Jesus said, man, this is, God says, this isn't working. I'm sending my son down and we're going to take care of this thing. And so the new way was such a big, big shift. We don't have to go to a priest anymore. You see, Jesus is the high priest. And so the intermediary between man and God was no longer another man who was standing at the podium, killing cats and putting them on the altar and burning them. Although if you want me to do that, I can make arrangements. I'm kidding. Well, okay. <laughs> Not your dogs. I'm just saying, just, just the cats. But we don't have to go to a priest. You see, Jesus is the high priest. We go directly to Jesus because he is now the intermediary between us and God. You see, that is the beauty of what Jesus did. Now, you can imagine this. The local religious rulers did not like this idea. Because Jesus took away the power and control of the local religious leaders to be able to say, you're good, you're not. You do this and you do this. 613 laws, well, I'm going to make 614, I'm going to put your name on that one. It took away that. And so the local religious leaders, they realized that this changed the game. It changed the entire relationship between man and God. You see, we can be free from legality, ritual, and tradition. You see, the new covenant is like an upgrade from the old covenant. Now, I was looking, trying to find this, but... I was looking for one of those things. They're called a floppy disk. Have you guys ever seen a floppy disk? Yeah, it's literally floppy. I discovered that I only knew about the five and a quarter inch floppy disks, but there was a previous generation that, I, that maybe some of you have seen, um, but it is an eight inch floppy disk, also bendable and floppy. And so the eight inch Bendable floppy disk was the original floppy disk. It is the OG floppy disk. It was the way to transfer data from one machine to the next machine because the internet did not exist in those times. And so you think, how am I going to transfer all of this data from one machine to the next machine? I bet I can fit it on a floppy disk. And the 8-inch version can hold a whole, an entire 175 kilobytes. 175 kilobytes. And, and so as time went forward, they realized the 175 kilobytes um, was a slightly limiting format. And so they increased and they decreased the size of the disk from eight inches to five and a quarter, and they increased the space on it. 
crazy how technology works. It got smaller and bigger at the same time. And then, of course, five and a quarter inch discs. I remember those from my childhood, seeing those laying around from time to time. I, I don't know if we ever actually owned a computer that had those in it, but I remember seeing it around. And they were also floppy. And, and those could hold a little bit more. See, they started out with 300 kilobytes. And over time, they figured out a way to get higher density things on it. I don't know. <laughs> so they got up to 1.2 megabytes. 1.2 megabytes. Man, we're rolling now. We're cooking with fire. That's good. All right. But then, of course, that became limiting. And so they went to the three and a half inch floppy disk. They got the thing smaller, but yet a higher capacity. Crazy. But that one was not floppy. Now, I remember those floppy, non-floppy disks when I was a kid. My folks had a computer, and we had uh, one of those floppy disk drives that would, would go into the machine. And Now, we had a raging, raging fast machine when I was a kid growing up in and, and our church, and we, we were up in, uh, living in Oregon at the time, and, and my dad invited all of his friends over to come and see this wonder. I mean, modern, modern marvel, really, the 40 gigabyte, I'm sorry, 40 megabyte hard drive, it was, I mean, how are you even going to fill up a 40 megabyte hard drive, really, right? That's just unfathomable, you know. It had two uh, megabytes of RAM. Um, I know. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt, baby. Buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> so I went and looked right now, and I thought, okay, how do we transfer data now? I mean, we don't have floppy disks anymore. We have USB drives. They're about the size of my finger. They've gotten even smaller. And I looked it up this week and thought, what's the largest one that you can buy right now? They have 128 gigabyte uh, thumb drives. So something the size of my finger could hold a whole lot of those big eight inchers. And me being a nerd and curious, I did the math. One of those thumb drives, the size of my finger, will hold 730,000 of the large disks. One of those things in my, will hold 106,000 of the 5-inch, and it will hold 45,000 of the 3.5-inch disks. That's a lot of storage, isn't it? The Old Covenant is one of those things that was still functional, it still worked, but it had its limits. And when Jesus came, he came in with a new way of doing things, saying, listen, I'm not abolishing everything in the Old Testament, I'm saying I'm giving it a massive upgrade. It's a massive upgrade. It's a big change from what used to be to what is now. It's funny as uh, when my, we had this computer, I, I bought my dad a video game. And it came in a cardboard box. Um, and it had a stack of those little three-inch discs. And, and so you'd put the discs in and you'd play for a while. And then it would pause and it'd say, insert disc two. So you pop it out and you put in disc two and you keep playing, insert disc three. All the way up to like disc 45 or something, you know, because it was really high tech, you know. And uh, I tell you, the graphics on the smartphones today and the, I mean, the gaming on the smartphone is exponentially better than what that thing was. Um, so it's just amazing how things have improved and changed over time. You can also look at it as this, is the change between the old and the new is very similar to this. It's a marriage certificate versus wedding vows. A marriage certificate versus wedding vows. You can, when you get married, there's a piece of paper. Because as a pastor, I see these papers on a regular basis. I'm, I'm sure you might have to dig through the file to find yours, or if you've gotten re married recently, it's it's going to be fresh on your mind. But there's a piece of paper when you got married that made it a legal binding contract. And you had to fill your name in the right spot and her name in the right spot. There were witnesses. There were dates. There were things. You had to make sure it was done exactly right. In fact, if you screwed it up, you couldn't just scratch it out and rewrite it in. You had to get a whole new certificate if you want to get this done right. So you have to write extremely careful, extremely clear every time. I know what to do, but every time I reread the instructions, let's make sure we're doing this exactly right. And so we, we go through, and it's this piece of paper. Listen, that piece of paper, you can hold that up and say, look, we're married. The quality of your marriage is not dependent on the piece of paper. The quality of your marriage is whether or not you're living up to the vows that you made when you stood there. The old covenant was a contract. There were boxes to check. There were things to do. There were, there were, it, was a, it, was a, it was an agreement on that level. The new covenant is like a relationship where Jesus made a way for us to have a vibrant relationship with the almighty God. The quality of your relationship on earth doesn't depend on a contract. It depends on your relationship and what you do in that relationship. 
If your marriage is struggling, you don't point to the paper and say, see, see, we have a good marriage. That it doesn't work, fellas. Just kidding. But that, that doesn't work, right? It, it, it isn't what, that isn't what makes it a great marriage. It's what you do in the relationship that makes the great marriage. And God made a way for us to have a great relationship with God. The old covenant was like the booster rockets that brought us to Christ. It was a necessary season where those booster rockets, they, they got the, the rocket up high enough for the main rocket to then get to where it needed to go. And so there's four things here, four promises that are in the new covenant. There are four promises in, in the new covenant. Number one is this, is God's law is written on our hearts. God's law is written on our hearts. You see, you and I know this, that just because somebody makes a law doesn't mean that people are going to do it. The president right now could make an executive order, put something into law that says, you know, the Congress, whatever, the whole government could come together and write something up and says, everybody must be kind to one another. How many of you guys know that would not change anything in our culture? People would still be unkind to each other from time to time. Recently, it seems like it's more often people are unkind to each other. Making a law about the kindness of people wouldn't necessarily have much impact in our society. And in fact, the only way to enforce that kind of a rule would have negative consequences attached to that. You can get a ticket, you can get fined, thrown in jail, prison, take away your cat, something. Something has to happen in order for that to work, right? External control does not build a great relationship. If it isn't in your heart, you're not going to do it. Which is why God's law is written in our heart is such a big deal. If it's not in your heart, you're not going to do it. External control has to be reinforced with negative external consequences. And God is saying, listen, I'm changing the game because I'm changing this from an external thing working inward. I want to work start on your inside and work on the way out. Number two, promise number two in here is that we belong to him and he belongs to us. This is relationship language all through this passage. It's a love language. In fact, when you look and you see how Jesus communicated with God and how he taught others to communicate with God, the disciples said, how do you pray, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But it's lost something in the translation over time. Because when you go back and look, it says, Abba, Father. Okay, Abba, Father. Okay, Abba, Father. Well, what's Abba, Father? It was a term of endearment that a child might use towards his father. It's like the six-year-old boy saying daddy to his dad. It was relationship language, not positional language. It was, there was an intimacy and a relationship with it. God wants to have a relationship with you. We belong to him and he belongs to us. Number three is this, is we get a better middleman. We get a better middleman. I got to say that God still gives us teachers and preachers and pastors, and, but Jesus is a better middleman than I am. The church said amen. That's right. Jesus is a better middleman than I am. He really is. In fact, every human has flaws in them, you and me combined. And Jesus is a better middleman than, you, than, than I could ever be. As a pastor, I don't determine where you stand with God. I don't. I'm a signpost. I, I point the way to Jesus. But I'm telling you that, that every one of us has to have a direct relationship with Jesus in order for this to work. This isn't about I know the Matt and then Matt knows Jesus as if I'm the intermediary. I can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And your favorite pastor or preacher or, or priest or, or spiritual leader can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. We have the better middleman. I can teach you what the Bible says about God. I can point you to Jesus. I can explain what his words say and his laws say, but, but I am not the one who saves. I am only the one who points. In fact, it says in the New Testament that we are all to be people who are pointers to Jesus. 
that we are all to be people who learn the ways of God and learn the word and, and dive in into it on our own and don't just rely on me telling you what it is, but to look into it yourself, dive into the words of God, develop a relationship with God. And we are all supposed to be people who are now pointers of people to Jesus. We are supposed to point other people to the mediator who can actually save us from ourselves. See, the bridge between heaven and earth is built. We don't have to build it anymore. In the old covenant, people were still trying to build that bridge. They were trying to do things to get you to that place, but, but that's not what it is anymore. The bridge is built. The only thing now is, is we just have to choose to walk on it. We just have to choose to say, yes, I believe that what Jesus did paid my price and I am now able to be in relationship with God. I can put my faith in Christ. The price is paid. So the fourth one is this, is true and forever forgiveness. And I'm closing, so if the band would like to come. True and forever forgiveness. We all need forgiveness, don't we? Mercy and grace, those are words that, that have a huge impact in our life. Maybe you don't know it, mercy and grace is. Maybe, maybe you've heard the name grace. Maybe you have a friend named grace. Grace and mercy are the things that God extends to us so that we might be in relationship with him. I think that this true and forever forgiveness is the best aspect of what Jesus did here on earth. Despite our messed up and complicated lives, we can go to Jesus and he has given us forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And it's something that can never be taken away. Something that can never be taken away. See, God's covenant is a reflection of his goodness, not our greatness. You and I didn't earn it. And in fact, for many years, they tried to build a system where we could, and it just doesn't work. You and I can't earn that forgiveness. We can't earn that relationship. It's not because of how great I am or how great you are or how great we are. It's because of the goodness of Jesus is why we have this opportunity to be in relationship with him. The only thing we have to do is repent and put our faith in Jesus. Repentance, acknowledging that, yeah, I've messed up. Yeah, I've fallen short. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Repentance is understanding that. I can't get there. And so, God, I need you to get me there. God, I need you to be with me. Will you stand with me as we pray one last time today? Heavenly Father, I, I pray this morning that for all those who are here, all those who are here in person, anybody who's watching or listening online, God, I pray for for all of those who have studied your word this morning, who have listened to what you've said. God, I pray right now that, that you would make it a fresh revelation to everyone here, that we would have direct access to you. God, we try so hard to earn it. We try so hard to, to, to be in right relationship with you. Sometimes we, we feel guilty and we have these things that are tugging at us, but, but God, I just want everyone here to understand and have rest that, that they can be in right relationship with God. You might be here this morning and maybe you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you've explored the idea. Maybe you've looked into it. Maybe you've, you've, you've kicked some tires. Maybe you've investigated. There's a season in my life where I didn't know if God was real and whether or not I had faith or trust in him. I remember those days of, of praying to the sky saying, hey, big guy, I don't even know if this is real, but if you're real, please reveal yourself to me. Maybe you've prayed prayers like that. Maybe you've been in a place where you said, you know, I don't even know if God is real, but, but maybe he is. This morning, you can know that God is real. I don't believe in accidents. I don't think that you're here by accident. I think that God has you here for a purpose. If you're here this morning, you've never made a decision to follow Christ. Or maybe, just maybe, you were following Christ and you've walked away for a season. Today can be a day where you come back. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in that place, will you just slip your hand up and say, today I'm making that decision. I'm following Christ today. Whether for the first time 
running renewal time. Amen. Amen. God, I just pray right now that for everyone here, as we make those decisions, as we move forward from this place, God, I pray that, that you would be with us in everything that we do. God, allow the relationship that you have with us, God, allow us to stay close to you, not through anything that we've done, but God, just acknowledging everything that you've done. God, you have a better way. Allow us to change, God. Allow us to move into relationship with you, not out of a forced necessity, but out of a drawing of your relationship to us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, church, let's sing one last song. Our prayer teams are gonna be here. They're gonna be on either side of the stage, ready to pray with you for anything at all. If you made a decision today, we would love to pray with you and give you a resource to help you on your way. God bless you and have a wonderful day. Got to live right, just stay in line, you've heard it all, and it leaves to me.